But tonight, I pray that you would speak to us through your holy word, make disciples. We could be at a million other places in New York City, but tonight we are here gathered to hear your word. So I pray, Lord, would you speak to us powerfully tonight and make us doers and not just hearers. In Jesus' name, amen. 2 Samuel chapter 12. Let's read the text together. Here is the word of the Lord this evening. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a city. The one rich and the other poor. The rich man had many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. He brought it up, and it grew up with him and his children. He used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. And it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus saith the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, and have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did this secretly. I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. And the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. David therefore sought God on behalf of the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. And the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. On the seventh day the child died. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to us. How then can we say to him, The child is dead? He may do himself some harm. But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, Is the child dead? 
And they said, He is dead. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. And then he went to his own house, and when he asked, they set food before him, and he ate. Then his servants said to him, What is this thing that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child was he, while he was yet alive, but when the child died, you arose and ate food. He said, While the child was alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, Who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me, that the child may live. But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went into her and lay with her. And she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon. And the Lord loved him and sent the message by Nathan the prophet. So he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. Now Joab fought against Rabbah of the Ammonites and took the royal city. And Joab sent messengers to David and said, I have fought against Rabbah, moreover I have taken the city of waters. Now then, gather the rest of the people together and encamp against the city and take it, lest I take the city and it be called by my name. So David gathered all his people together and went to Rabbah and fought against them and took it. And he took the crown of their king from his head. The weight of it was a talent of gold, and it was a precious stone. And it was placed on David's head, and he brought out the spoil of the city a very great amount. And he brought out the people who were in it, and set them to labor with saws and iron picks and iron axes, and made them toil at the brick kilns. And thus he did to all the cities of the Ammonites. Then David and all the people returned to Jerusalem. Verses 1 through 6. This evening is a parable given by Nathan the prophet. It is important to note that this is not a lie. Some have said that Nathan lied, and so they justify lying by pointing to this text, and they falsely accuse Nathan of lying. It is important to note that this is not a lie and it is not intended to deceive. After all, by verse 7, Nathan clearly points out that David is the man in his parable. Just as the rich man took the poor man's one lamb, so likewise David took Uriah's one wife. The point of this parable is to show that the king's life did not match up to his judgments. He was a walking hypocrite. David decrees that the rich man who took the lamb deserves to die and that he ought to repay the poor man fourfold. Now that fourfold number comes from Exodus 22 verse 1. If you turn to Exodus 22 1, here's what it says. Take a look at the text. If a man steals an ox or sheep and slaughters it or sells it, he shall restore five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. That's where David gets the fourfold number. Now, suffice it to say, this is not the only time in the Old Testament where a prophet uses a parable to show a king that his life does not match his words. There are at least two other instances with two very different prophets. One example is found in 1 Kings chapter 20. Turn with me. 
if you if you will, to First Kings chapter twenty. First Kings chapter twenty, and we will pick up from the thirty-fifth verse. Now a certain man of the sons of the prophet said to his neighbor by the word of the Lord, Strike me, please. And the man refused to strike him. Then he said to him, Because you have not obeyed the voice of the Lord, surely as soon as you depart from me, a lion shall kill you. And as soon as he left him, a lion found him and killed him. And he found another man and said, Strike me, please. So the man struck him, inflicting a wound. Then the prophet departed and waited for the king by the road and disguised himself with a bandage over his eyes. Now as the king passed by, he cried out to the king, Your servant went out into the midst of the battle, and there a, a man came over and brought a man to me and said, Guard this man, if by any means he is missing, your life shall be for his life, or else you shall pay a talent of silver. While your servant was busy here and there, he was gone. The king of Israel said to him, So shall your judgment be. You yourself have decided it. And he hastened to take away the bandage from his eyes, and the king of Israel recognized him as one of the prophets. Then he said to him, Thus saith the Lord, because you have let slip out of your hand a man whom I appointed to utter destruction, therefore your life shall go for his life, and your people for his people. And so the king of Israel went to his house sullen and displeased and came to Samaria. So here we see a, uh, an instance again where a prophet tells a parable, it's not real, uh, he never went to war, but he tells a parable to point out Ahab's hypocrisy. Nathan does the same in this text. So it's important to note that these are not lies. Verse 10, because you have despised me. Do you see those words? Once again, we are learning about the importance of obedience in the life of the Christian to disobey the word of God is the same thing as despising God. To disobey the word of God is the same thing as despising God. You see, David starts the story by breaking the 10th commandment. He covets. Then he moves on and breaks the 7th commandment. Adultery. Finally, he broke the 6th commandment. And he murdered David disobeyed God multiple times, and in doing so, he despised God. One sin led to another sin, and the same is true for all of us. If we do not quickly kill sin, if we do not repent and turn to Christ, sin will multiply and quickly kill us. There is no bottom to the sewer that is the human heart. Things can get more evil, and it often does, if we don't repent. When David was not blinded by lust, he was able to judge righteously. But when sin blinds us, all moral rationality leaves and we are consumed by sin. This is why repentance is such a great gift from God. Repentance literally saves us. Last Sunday, the sermon was about the fact that obedience powerfully proves genuine faith. Those who love Christ, obey Christ. Do you remember Sunday's sermon? Verse 10 is important for our study today. It has three key components to it. See if you could bring out the three components from verse 10. Let's read it together. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. 
In verse 10, we see David's sin. What the sin is tantamount to and the consequence for David's sin. So what we see in that verse are three components. We see what David's sin was. We see what the sin is tantamount to. And we see the consequences for David's sin. The sin was that David took the wife of Uriah. The sin of adultery was tantamount to despising God. And the consequence for his sin was that the sword will never depart from his house. Those are three components that are key to verse 10. When it says that the sword will never depart from his house, it is not talking about a literal sword. Often, however, they do die by the sword. But instead, it's talking about the fact that instead of dying natural deaths in old age, David's family members will die violent deaths. And, although in verse 13, God has put away and forgiven David of his gross sins, he nevertheless has to deal with the consequences of his sins. Verse 10 is fulfilled later in this book as three of his sons are killed. Abnon, Absalom, and Adonijah are all slain in the prime of their lives. Verse 11 is literally fulfilled as Absalom, David's own son, will one day rebel against David and have sex with his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel, thus fulfilling Nathan's prophecy. And of course, verse 14 is graphically clear. That as a direct result of David's sin, the child born out of David's union with Bathsheba shall die. Now here is a quick word about verse 23. I do not believe that the verse teaches anything about the eternal destiny of David's dead child. Many have presupposed that verse 23 is an indication that David's dead child is in heaven, but it says nothing of that. I believe that David is simply saying one of two things. Either one, he's saying that one day he will himself, like the young child, he will die and go to a place of no return. Or, perhaps, second, David is simply saying that he might be able to go and physically embrace the body of his son, but there will be no return of affection from the boy to David because the boy is dead. There is nothing in the passage that definitively declares anything about the eternal destiny of the child. If you go with the first option, readers must also remember that the prophet Samuel uttered a similar statement to the unregenerate King Saul in 1 Samuel 28.19. And if you look at 1 Samuel 28.19, it is a text that simply states that King Saul and his sons will die and join Samuel in death. That's all it's saying, that they will all be in the grave. Now, having said that, although there will be grace eventually shown to David through Solomon and ultimately through the Messiah who comes from David's line, for the time being, there are some very destructive consequences for David's sins that he must come to grips with. 
we must be acutely aware of the fact that although our sins are forgiven through faith in Jesus Christ, there are often, nevertheless, immense consequences for our sins. As King David's story shows, sometimes the death of a child occurs as an act of God's discipline. The hard facts are inescapable and they are very instructive. Now, I have to say, listen, we live in a fallen world and sometimes children die and women have miscarriages and it has nothing to do with sin or at least the sin of the mother or the father. It's just a part of living in a fallen world. But there are times, as David's story shows, that children are killed by the Lord as an act of divine justice. The fact that God disciplines us for sin is true in both the New and Old Testaments. For example, turn with me to 1 Corinthians 11.29 for a New Testament example. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. There we see the purpose clause. That is why people aren't taking the Lord's Supper properly. And that is why God disciplines that congregation of believers with weakness, illness, and death. So what we can say is that weakness, illness, death, family dysfunction, discord, and rebellion could all be consequences, now listen to what I just said, could all be consequences of sin. Whereas we must not presume to be God or know God's mind definitively and accuse people of sin, for I believe it is absolutely heartless to go to someone and say, this is why this happened to you. Nevertheless, the individual himself or herself will do, uh, will be wise to simply quietly reflect and ask the Lord if there is any sin that he or she must repent of if they are in the midst of personal crisis. The gay man with AIDS who repents and turns to Christ will still die of AIDS. No doubt the greater victory is that he will go to heaven. And in light of that, the death is merely a gateway. But on this earth, there are consequences that he must deal with for his sin. Men who impregnate women out of wedlock will have to deal with family discord and often trouble sons and daughters. Women who make poor marriage choices and Disobey the Lord in marrying unbelievers, have to deal with marital conflict and a divided house. These are all results of sin. And we are wise to consider the Lord's discipline. Now moving on. 2 Samuel 12 clearly demonstrates that God permitted polygamy in the days of the Old Testament. God Himself it says, gave David all of King Saul's wives. 
look at the text. That's, it's right there in the text. It does not say that God prohibited polygamy. In fact, it says that God was the one who gave David all of King Saul's wives. And God never sins. Therefore, polygamy was not a sin in the Old Testament. Now, just for the record, the Bible doesn't mention that David took those women to be his wives. He may or may not have a Bible of silent on that. And uh, the Bible only records that Saul had uh, one wife and one concubine. He may have had more, but we aren't privy to that information. The Bible only records one wife and one concubine for King Saul. But the fact is that David had the right to marry all of Saul's wives. The days of the Old Testament, it was common for a new king to take over the wives of a defeated king. You think about a lion and a lion's pride, that's often what occurs uh, when a young lion defeats an old lion and takes over the pride. Same principle. I want us to read 2 Samuel 12, 8 together. The Lord is speaking here at, through Nathan, and He says, And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms. Into your arms is a, a Hebraic euphemism for love for sexual intercourse and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives for marriage in other words and gave you the house of Israel and Judah and if this were too little I would add to you as much more God was the one who gave David his wives and Saul's kingdom hence polygamy in the Old Testament was not a sin additionally Solomon David's son from Bathsheba will be a legitimate heir to the throne. Why? Because after Uriah's death, David, David's polygamous marriage to Bathsheba will be considered by God to be a valid marriage. Verse 24 explicitly states that God loves Solomon and he, he is even called Jedidiah, which means beloved of the Lord. On the other hand, the text clearly shows us that David's first son with Bathsheba, who was the result of adultery, is killed by God. The difference couldn't be clearer or any more vivid. And it's done intentionally. You have a legitimate son and an illegitimate son. And the legitimacy of the child, remember, is all dependent upon the legitimacy of the marriage. So polygamy is legitimate in the Old Testament. Now in the New Testament, Jesus comes along and does away with both polygamy and remarriage. One could even say he does away with polygamy by doing away with remarriage. Matthew 19.9 But I say unto you that whosoever shall put away his wife not for fornication and shall marry another commits adultery and he who marries one who uh, one who one put away commits adultery. Let me just read that last part. And he who marries one put away commits adultery. In other words, if you marry a divorcee, you commit adultery. Therefore, Jesus takes away any exception clause there. If a woman is divorced because she committed adultery, anyone who marries her, the divorcee, commits adultery. 
there is no adultery exception for remarriage. Once again, if one does not call for the divorce of remarriages, just as John the Baptist did in Mark 6, 18, when he told Herod, who was married to Herodias illegitimately, he said to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have her, present tense. In other words, he was calling for a divorce. You could use that text. Anyone asks you, where in the Bible does it say you must divorce a, a remarriage and just turn them to Mark 6.18? John the Baptist clearly calls for it. And it is a first-tier issue because he loses his head for it. Stand for righteousness. We too must be willing to stand for the sanctity of marriage. But as I was saying, if you do not call for the divorce of remarriages, one does not have a biblical base for banning polygamy. By identifying remarriage as adultery, Jesus was prohibiting it and calling for the dissolution of remarriages. By doing so, he is also prohibiting polygamy. It is an issue that John the Baptist shows us through the pages of Scripture, it is an issue worth suffering for. In an age where there's all sorts of remarriage and gay marriage, let us be men and women of God and stand the way John the Baptist stood for the sanctity of marriage. Amen. Verses 15 to 23 gives us two important instructional pieces here. First, it demonstrates to us the power of prayer and fasting. Although David, King David committed a heinous sin, he was still nevertheless a man after God's own heart. That's why many of you are named David. Because he will go down in history as a godly man, although he committed a very heinous sin. David knew the power of prayer and fasting. As long as the child was sick but alive, David is fasting and praying for the child. Presumably in the ark where the ark of the in, in the tent, I'm sorry, in the tent where the ark of the covenant was housed. David is on his face on the ground, verse 16, for a period of seven days. Begging and pleading and asking God for mercy. David knows what he deserves, but nevertheless he pleads for mercy. God, however, justly takes his son's life as a part of divine justice. I want to say something here. This is a micro picture for all of us. For you see, we all rightly deserve God's wrath. And we are the ones who should be begging for God's mercy. But thanks be to God, instead of us receiving our just condemnation the way King David did, God hears those who turn to faith in Christ and grants us divine mercy instead of condemnation. Hallelujah! Everyone, and I'll say this again, everyone who turns to Christ in faith and begs for divine mercy receives. Everyone who believes in the gospel shall be saved. Now what is the gospel? Number one, there is a holy and righteous God who loves us, but He must send sinners to hell. Number two, all humans are sinners who rightly deserve punishment in eternal hell. Number three, Jesus Christ was sent to earth by God the Father. 
He was fully God and fully man and He died on the cross for our sins. Absorbed the wrath of God in His very flesh. And three days later, He resurrected from the grave. So that number four, if you repent of your sinful life and turn to Christ and believe in Jesus as your Lord God and Savior, you will have eternal life. The Bible makes this promise. It is an assurance. And just as David pled for God's mercy, we too ought to plead for divine mercy. And the good news is that the Bible tells us that whoever comes to Him, to Christ, and begs for mercy, God will in no wise cast out. Amen? The second thing that verses 15 to 23 show us is with regard to fasting prayers. You know what? This is still part of the first piece. The first thing. This is still underneath the umbrella of of fasting prayer. I want to make a brief point here before I move on to my second point. Regarding fasting prayer, God often answers fasting prayers. Now, although He did not in David's situation here with the child, it serves us well to note that David knew that God often does answer fasting prayer and that God is merciful, which is why David is down on his face for seven days. David knows that God answers prayer and fasting, and that is why he does it. Turn with me to Ezra 8.23. Ezra 8.23 says this, So we fasted and implored our God for this, and He listened. He what? God listened to our entreaty. Why? Because Ezra and his folks fasted and prayed. There is amazing power in fasting and prayer. Are you in a difficult situation? And I would urge you, like David, to pray and fast. Like Ezra, to pray and fast. Like Daniel, to pray and fast. Like Jesus, to pray and fast. There is amazing power in prayer and fasting. Hallelujah. Now let's move on. Our second instructional piece we gain from verse verses 15 to 23. I want you to listen carefully here. Let the Bible inform you theologically, not the culture. Let the Bible inform you. Verses 15 to 23 informs us that once a person dies, we are not to pray for him. Unlike what Roman Catholics practice, biblical Christians do not pray for the dead. You see, once King David discovers that his son is dead, he stops praying and fasting, gets up, and goes on with life. Listen, once a person dies, that person is permanently either in heaven or in hell. The Bible says that it is appointed man once to die, and then the judgment. You have one short lifetime on earth to make a decision for Christ. Once you die, it is too late. The living are not to pray or fast for the dead. 
It is when they are alive that we pray and fast for lost souls to come to Christ. Once a man dies, we are to cease praying for him. At death, it is too late. We are not to pray for the dead. Amen? Uh, finally, the chapter closes by taking us back to the war against the Ammonites. If you recall, David had Uriah killed in a battle against the Ammonites in chapter 11. And it is very important for us, listen now, listen to this important point. It is very important to note that although David did not physically kill Uriah himself, God nevertheless holds David accountable for murder. Now why is this principle important for us today? Well, I'll tell you why. You see, today, many pro-lifers like to say that only the doctor is responsible for the abortion of an unborn child. They hold that the mother who directed the doctor to perform the abortion is merely an innocent victim. Yet in God's sight, however, the mother is a murderer. I'll say it again. In God's sight, the mother is a murderer. If abortion is murder, then the mother who orders the abortion is a murderer. If abortion is murder, which it is, then the mother who orders the abortion is a murderer. King David ordered his general, Joab, to intentionally place Uriah in the fiercest battle zone and, with, and to withdraw all men from Uriah when the battle rose in intensity. And as a result, Uriah died. Although the Ammonites actually killed Uriah, God nevertheless holds David responsible as a murderer for giving the order to Joab. Listen to how God put it in verse 9. Let's read God's word together. Why have you, David, why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah with the sword. Do you see that? God holds David directly responsible for murder, although he didn't physically swing the sword himself. I told you that was an important point. I need to pay attention. I came here to study the Word of God. This is God speaking to us this evening. Who cares what the Supreme Court says? We want to know what God has to say. Amen? Unlike, unlike the opening of chapter 11... Chapter 12 closes with David actually leaving Jerusalem and going to war. David is where he's supposed to be. Remember when we opened up chapter 11, David was not where he was supposed to be. But now as we close chapter 12, David is where he's supposed to be. He's working. And as a result, he captures the city of Rabbah. And in verse 30, we are told that a crown weighing about 75 pounds of gold. Can you imagine that? It's taken from the head. 75 pounds. 75 pounds of gold is taken from the head of the Ammonite king and placed on David's head. So the chapter ends on sort of a high note for David. But let me say this, because next week we're going to meet for uh, uh, the next chapter. 
and you'll see this because of the sins which occurred in chapter 11 chapter 13 will be the beginning of massive hardships for David's family let us repent and turn to the Lord for he is gracious and merciful for all who cry out with a contrite heart with faith in Jesus Christ let's pray tonight Holy Father in heaven, I thank you, God, for your...